0: Please be seated. <clears throat> Kids, make sure you have your children's bulletin. We will be referring to that and you do have your own translation in there as well today. We'll be looking at that throughout the sermon. <clears throat> we're starting a, a new book this morning. We're going to be in the Old Testament book of Ruth. I guess after Esther and now going into Ruth, I guess we could be looking at some great women in the Old Testament. So this morning we're we'll going to be looking at Ruth chapter one. Uh, Verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were... Mechlon and Kilion they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah they went into the country of Moab and remained there but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons these took Moabite wives the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth they lived there about 10 years and both Mechlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Let's go together to God in prayer. O Lord God, you have established your word as a testimony for your people and a law for all who know you. Lord, You've commanded fathers to teach Your Word to their children, that the next generation might know You, that even those unborn would arise and tell their children, so that they should set their hope in You, the living God, and not forget Your works and keep Your commandments. And so, Lord, as we come today before Your living and active Word, we ask that You, Yourself, as our Father, would teach us as You teach children so that we would set our hope in you and not forget your works. Feed us richly this morning in your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I grew up, went to high school in Tennessee, uh, right outside of Memphis, Tennessee, a little suburb called Germantown. And I turned 16 in Tennessee, and I got my driver's license, my first one in Tennessee. And Tennessee has this weird law, and it's this. It is always illegal in Tennessee to make a U-turn unless it's posted that you can, which is kind of the opposite of most states, right? So, you know, they get a lot of revenue on those border counties from that, I assure you, because people just assume, oh, okay, I can take a U-turn here. You can never make a U-turn in Tennessee, ever, unless they say you can. And I have gotten that ticket. So they're real. They're, they, they tell the truth about that. And as we talk about a new series on Ruth, I want you to have that picture in your mind of uh, an entire uh, community saying no to U-turns. You better know where you're going. You better not need to change your direction because the book of Ruth is about the exact opposite. The book of Ruth is about U-turns. The book of Ruth is about the fact that God allows U-turns. In fact, as we start this whole um, series on Ruth, John Mark and I kind of came up with a poster. Do we have a picture of that? Is it working? Okay. Okay here's what Ruth is about. In case you're like me, you're more visual, you want to see it. Ruth is about grace to turn around. That's what Ruth is about. Ruth is not about an example for us to follow. Ruth is not about some weird thing that happened way back then. Ruth is about God's grace. The fact that God allows U-turns. So this passage today starts out in a very bad way. It starts out, it says, when the judges ruled, that's In case you have forgotten your Old Testament context, let me remind you of that. Kids, actually, you can help remind us all. Kids, if you'll look in your translation, we said in verse 1 for the kids that that means in the dark times after entering the promised land. Right after the book of Joshua comes the book of Judges, and Judges is just chaotic. The people are terrible, and the book of Judges ends with the phrase, everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes. Social chaos. People are in misery. There's a lack of righteousness in the people. The people of God are increasingly becoming more and more and more like the surrounding nations. There's nothing distinct about them. And it's in that bleak setting the book of Judges ends with this lack of repentance in the people and so God sends curses at them from the covenant as he said he would and sometimes they get it and they repent but they immediately fall right back to it other times even when life gets hard God's sending curses they don't get it and they don't repent and it's in these circumstances the book of Ruth begins so here's kind of what we're going to talk about today the big picture theme of today is this that God's grace is bigger than our failures isn't that a great thing to know That God's grace is bigger than our failures. And by our failures, I mean the things that typically, because of our choices, we bring upon ourselves. Things that, if we're honest, we have to own and say, yeah, that's my fault, I I caused this. But God's grace is bigger than even that because God, we're going to see, uses difficulties, trials, hardships to drive his rebellious children to repentance. So let's jump right in and see how he does that. First of all, we'll see how God uses our difficulties These first few words in the text here about the judges and about famine, they tell the reader here that this is a time of judgment from God. An original reader would have recognized, oh yeah, that God was doing it all the time in the book of Judges. So here, life is difficult, they're in a famine, must be a judgment from God. You see, God doesn't overlook the sin in his people. He he doesn't just cast it aside and say, oh, they'll get a little bit better. No, he loves us too much to let us stay in our sin. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see he sends difficulties to try to drive them to repentance. I mean, Bethlehem has no food. And then as we just read, they went to Moab, which we think some big trip from Bethlehem to Moab is about the same as walking from here to downtown Columbia, Okay, It's a little weird for all of a sudden there be no food here and then like 45 miles away there's food. There's clearly something divine, supernatural going on there. God's trying to drive his people to repentance. And so what happens? Well, kids, look with me at your verse 2. We can explain it to your parents. Here's what happens. It says a man named Elimelech took his wife Naomi and their two sons to stay for a while in the wicked land of Moab. See, he doesn't repent in the face of famine. What does this man of God whose name Elimelech actually means? My God is king. What does he do? He leaves. And what's worse, he goes to Moab. Moab. Now, every culture has its no-no's. You may not be familiar with the ancient Near East culture of Israel, so let me help you out a little bit. Okay, here's how we can kind of identify this. For some of you a little older in the room, you understand the no-no's, right? You don't pull on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off the old Long Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim, right? Okay, so for some, some of you who are a little younger, right, you do not talk about Fight Club, right? Okay, and for ancient Israel, guess what? You did not go to Moab, They were a hated people. They were a hating people. You did not go there. They're an ancient enemy. And this is more than a simple relocation. This man is leaving the land that God had given to his family. At the end of the book of Joshua, they've conquered the land, and God is like the great real estate agent. He says, okay, you get this piece, you get this piece, you get this piece, you get this piece, and for all generations, this is your family's land. And Elimelech looks at that and says... No, I know God gave me land. I know God gave me wealth. I know God gave me a home. But you know what? This famine is too big for God. He can't handle it. I've got to go find something else. And so the grass is always greener over the septic tank. So he goes to Moab to find something better. And the text of Ruth itself hints there's a problem here. Look with me at verse 2. It says they went into the country of Moab and remained there literally in hebrew that last phrase says they became there it was supposed to be a temporary stay but moab became home and they became moabites is what this verse says here's how we put it for the kids so they would understand kids look at the second half of verse two there it says even though they were part of god's people in bethlehem they became like the people of moab Boys and girls, you ever see anything like that happen? You start hanging out with the same group of friends, and all of a sudden you become like your friends? That's what happened. They, they left where they're supposed to be, and they went to Moab, and they became like Moabites. They became comfortable somewhere they shouldn't be. Oh, dear flock, we do this, don't we? We do this, don't we, when we play mentally with the forbidden when we, when we fantasize to escape those stressful parts, those hard parts of life, even when those hard parts come about from our own dumb decisions, life gets difficult. And so we, we, we spend time in a fantasy world. Maybe it's a, a sensual world. Maybe it's a world where you have more stuff. Maybe it's a world where you have more money or maybe it's whatever it is. You spend a lot of time in this fantasy world dreaming about this, lusting over this. And you all of a sudden you find yourself doing something you never ever thought would be possible that you would actually do because you've spent so much time mentally fantasizing you became that thing and you walked right into something that surprises you. I mean, you know how it works, right? This isn't some big revelation for y'all. We tell ourselves in temptation, it's just a peak, it's just for a second, it's just a taste, it's just until the stress wears off. I just need some release. It's, it's been difficult. And so we leave who we are and we take up residence and habits and practices that really aren't God's best for us, don't we? And we end up finding it more and more comfortable and we stay there. Let me give you an extreme example. It's happened in this church. It's happened in lots of churches. It happens all across our culture of sexual sin outside of marriage. It starts in the thoughts you play with a fantasy about this person you tell yourself it's not real oh, i'd never act on it but you stay in that fantasy long enough and you become there and then you will act on it more easily than you ever thought you would and that's the extreme example okay a lot of you are like, okay i'm not quite there pastor sean okay let's do a little more mundane example okay how about this one of, of living in moab what is it you go to mentally for peace or as Sinclair Ferguson at First Press, Columbia likes to ask, what is it you think about when you're not thinking about anything? Where is it your mind goes for rest? Do you need to fit into a certain group? So, oh, if I could just fit in with this group of people, then i I feel better. And when I say that, adults, don't just turn your mind off. So I always talking to the teenagers again about peer pressure. Now, uh, adults, is that peer pressure for adults? Let's Let's help the teenagers out here. There's peer pressure, right? There's peer pressure, I mean... I've been to OP games. I've seen how OP parents act. There's peer pressure at OP. Y- y'all might not know that. As an outsider, can I just tell you, there's peer pressure at OP. Uh, there's peer pressure in the ministry. There's peer pressure. Well, are you going to be the really conservative guy? Are you going to be the really liberal guy? Are you going to be the really cool guy? I don't have a prayer of that one. Are you, which guy are you going to be in ministry? Or maybe it's at your work. Which, which person are you going to be? We always have this this temptation to conform to something, right? And so often we think, if I could just fit in with these people... I'd be happy. I'd be at peace. Life would be good. It's this desperate need to belong, isn't it? And instead of seeking it in Christ, where he's promised total acceptance, we say, this famine's too big for you, Christ. I'm going to go seek it over here in Moab. If I can just wear the right clothes, have my kids get the right awards, if I can just look the right way, drive the right car, join the right club, this group of people will think I'm successful and I'll feel secure and happy. Christian if that's you you're dwelling in Moab you've become Moab you're loving the things the world loves you're looking for them to fix you instead of Christ so what happens to our little family here well the good life eludes them in Moab they don't quite get it God loves his people too much to let them be happy and content in their rebellion and so Well, he does something about it. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 3. Here's what happened. It says, God didn't like them being there, so the man died, leaving only Naomi and the boys. Now, in the ESV text, or Hebrew text, excuse me, of of verse 3 has some interesting word choices there. It says in in our version in in verse 3, it says, she was left alone with her two sons. It sounds almost as if she survived an attack, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's almost like, well, it happened and she was left. That's it. It hints, especially to an original reader reading that they would go, maybe, maybe going to Moab was a mistake. I mean, she could leave and return now. Her husband, the head of her family has gone. Now she's kind of the default head if her sons aren't quite married. So she could take him back, but she doesn't. She stays. Her husband's mistake becomes her mistake. And then in verse four, it tells us what? Her sons took Moabite wives. This is not the typical word for marriage. This is, this actually is a word used for abducting somebody, for kidnapping. They grabbed, they plundered two wives, and it actually became kind of a slander, a slang term in Hebrew for an illegitimate marriage. So an original reader reading that would not say, oh, they had a happy wedding. They would say, ooh, that's illegitimate. Maybe going to Moab was a mistake. And then again the rest of verse 4, it says they lived there about ten years. So we fast forward a decade. And it's unusual that is it just does it so fast in the Hebrew text. It doesn't mention anything about children. It just says, and ten years later. You see, especially after the death of the patriarch Elimelech, the father, the birth of children shows that the family continues, that even though this has happened, God is moving forward the family. They're gonna have a name, they're gonna have an identity. In fact, it was so important to have children that later custom, after Ruth was written in Hebrew culture, if you went ten years without having a child, you could have a divorce. Easily get a divorce because that, that's that's grounds right there. And here they are, ten years, no kids. You can hear it again, can't you? It's soft, but it's there. Maybe, maybe going to Moab was a mistake. And so the difficulties they've brought on themselves come to a crescendo. They come to a peak. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 5. It says, after 10 years, the boys died, leaving Naomi the only survivor from Bethlehem. So here she is in a foreign land. Her husband's dead. Her boys are dead. It's just her. You know, many of you watch. It's become incredibly popular. I resisted for the first several seasons. I watched it last season and got hooked. That show Downton Abbey, who, who knew a PBS show could be so popular, right? And, and in case you don't know about Downton Abbey, it's set right after the sinking of the Titanic. In this, As English culture is changing, you have this lord at his manor, and he's uh, the head of this whole estate. And the son, the heir, is killed on the Titanic, and the British law is uncompromising. It cannot pass to the daughters. It has to pass to a son. And if you don't, if your daughters don't marry, it goes out of your family to somebody else. And so the whole plot, all this other stuff is going on, but it's always, where's the heir? Where's the heir? Where's the heir? And that's what's going on right here in Ruth. She's got nothing. And this pressure, I, I just don't know if I can help you understand this pressure. That's what Naomi is. Look what it says in verse five. It uses that same term. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She's a remnant of one. She has no name, no identity. Notice, it doesn't say Naomi. It says the woman was left. You know, in our day and age when we have such welfare programs, we've got women with uh, infant children to help out with buying groceries, we've got Social Security, we've got disability payments, we've got uh, sexual harassment awareness, all these programs we have to help catch situations like this. I don't think I can get you to really understand what a catastrophe they were in at this point. We've got three women here. No husbands, no children, no children. No grandchildren, no extended family. In that culture, they have no future, and even more so, they have no value. Their whole job, so to speak, was to continue the family line, to have children, and they didn't do that. Naomi's old, Ruth and Orpah have shown that apparently they, after 10 years, they can't have kids. Nobody is gonna touch them. It sounds harsh, but in that culture, they would, would have been considered human debris. Taking up valuable resources others could use. And it's into that sinking hopelessness that verse 5 ends. And and what are they going to do? What's going to happen? Only something amazing or supernatural can save them at this point because they are down and out in Moab. But remember, what are we talking about today? God's grace is bigger than our failures. And so God has sent some difficulties, and God's going to use those difficulties to do what? To drive his rebellious children to repentance. So let's see if that works. Verse 6 says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. See, there's more than a road trip here. I don't want you to think, okay, she just got up and went home. No, there's something happening in her heart. That that very first phrase there at verse 6 is, The Lord had visited his people. That's not like when you and I go visit our friends, or you and I, for Christmas, go visit the family. God's visiting means he is present. means he is working. It means something amazing is happening. Maybe you remember Christmas time. Remember John the Baptist's dad standing there holding his baby boy, and what does he say? He says, the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. That's what he's talking about here. That's what Ruth is talking about here. God is doing something amazing in Bethlehem. And so Naomi hears about it all the way over in Moab. And so what does she do? Well, the text of verse 6 says what? To return from the country of Moab. She rises to return from the country of Moab. But that word return is actually much more significant than that in Hebrew. It's not just geography. That word for return is actually the word for repent. In fact, it's the main word used in the Old Testament for repentance. So, really, literally, she repents from Moab at this point. So that the text is not just saying she got up and grabbed her bags and said, Okay, I'm going home. Something happened inside of her and she said, No. She gets it. She repents. She says, this is not who I am. This is not where I belong. I am not a Moabite. I'm going back to where God had placed me. And that's repentance. It's so much more than a feeling or an emotion. So often we hear the word repentance. We think an emotion, don't we? We think a feeling. Repentance is an action. She gets up and says, no more this direction. I'm going this way. She hears of God's grace way over in Moab, and she thinks to herself, maybe, just just maybe, there's a chance for me to get some of that grace too. And so in one small act of obedience, she grasps onto a thin wisp of hope, and she repents and goes home. God is back in Bethlehem. There's food, there's friends, there's family, and maybe there's faith there. Boys and girls, here's how he put it for you. Look with me at your verse 6 so you'll understand. When she heard that God was again blessing Bethlehem with food, she stood up and repented from Moab, taking Ruth and Orpah with her. See, God had disciplined her right back to Bethlehem, the land of promise. And as we're going to see, he's going to restore her. Very much how as godly parents, we desperately try to discipline our children back to a place of god's blessing we don't just punish our children for getting out of line we're trying to discipline them back to obedience and blessing that is what god is doing here because there's always grace to turn around it's never too late me say that again there's always grace to turn around it's never too late it may have been a mistake to go to moab it was unwise to remain there after the death of her husband. It was rebellion to let her son kidnap slash marry Moabite women. She has been foolish. She has sinned. She remembers who she is. And in one small act of repentance begins a huge process of restoration for her. Oh, dear sinner, sinner, everyone within the sound of my voice if you look at your life if you look inside of your heart and you and you think i have blown it i am so far gone down this path i can't go back there's no way god would accept me you are not alone we have all had that thought and that thought is wrong Never underestimate the power of God's grace to turn around. God allows U-turns. And we're going to see in Naomi's life that this catastrophe, this complete, let's call it disintegration, this complete fracturing, or to use a Hebrew term, this complete dis the peace of her life is just torn apart. It's overcome by a radical love from God who calls his daughter back home. Let me ask you something. Have you ever gotten to a place in your life ever so gradually where you don't want to be and you don't know how to get out? Are you living in what the Bible calls shalom, this peaceful wholesomeness that God promises to his people? Or when you get right down to it, is your life just a hot mess and you don't know how to get out of it? There is grace for you to turn around. I mean, we cannot help but read this story through the lens of our New Testament story, can we? Bethlehem's a very familiar place, isn't it? I can, I, mean, I can smell pine trees and cinnamon just by saying the word Bethlehem. We can repent. We can turn around and get God's grace for a U-turn because God's grace came in giving Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem for us to be the redeemer of god's wayward people oh to those of you who know you are christians to those of you who confess faith in christ do you hear the voice of christ in this text is he reminding you perhaps even now of areas of devotion and obedience that perhaps you have let slip Has it been so long since you really spent time with God in his word that you don't even remember what he's like? That God is more of an abstract principle or a concept, but the idea of God as a person with whom you have a relationship? I don't know about that. He can be. He is a person. Is he calling you even now to come? Come. Spend time with me. Reverse this trend of walking away and being in Moab and come back to who you are. Maybe the Holy Spirit is gently whispering to you right now, maybe, maybe you should stop flirting with that coworker. You know that's bad news. But you hesitate because you've let it go on for so long. How, how can you get out? Even now, dear Christian... You can repent of those things. There is grace for you to turn around. Maybe the Spirit right now is encouraging you to come and talk to one of the pastors or an elder. To ask for help in that private struggle that embarrasses you. That has stolen your joy for decades. And you've got to keep it a secret. That secret bondage that just keeps you from rejoicing in the Lord. It just seems impossible to be free from that guilt, doesn't it? Even now, take that step of repentance. Reach out for help. You can live in freedom from that bondage. You see, dear flock, if we are stuck in bondage as Christians to some sin, we didn't just jump in. It was a gradual process over years of habits and customs that has gotten us there. And it does not have to be overcome by one huge, gigantic leap out of it like we think it does. One small act of saying no more and turning around and repenting and saying, God, give me grace. Help me out of this. That's available for you. You can be free. Here's how C.S. Lewis put this, the battle of temptation in the life of the Christian. I thought this was so applicable. This is from Mere Christianity. It's a long quote. I think we have it for you up here. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparent trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack, otherwise impossible. You see, what he's saying there is this. We may be somewhere in our lives that we know we shouldn't be. And our conscience has been bothered for so long. But often the only real obstacle is our own pride. If we would just turn around and make a better decision and say, Lord, I don't know how to get out of this. I can't do it in my own strength, but I want to. Will you give me grace and help me? And there's grace for you to turn around and get out of that. People of God, those of you who know Christ, repent and return from that bondage even now because the Savior has shed his blood to set you free from that. And it is available for you. And for those of you who do not know Jesus Christ, you're still kind of maybe investigating this Christianity thing, you're not really sure, please do not hear me saying here that Naomi's repentance is what earned her salvation or that anybody's repentance is what earns them salvation. No, God's grace called, drug, we might even say his daughter back home. It's his grace that's the final word, not Naomi's or our efforts. But if you don't know Christ, I'd just like to ask you a simple question. Is your life where you want it to be? Have those things to which you've given yourself completely, your career, your relationships, popularity, wealth, whatever it is, have they fulfilled you? Have they given you the joy that they've promised you? Or do you see that deep down you're not happy and you've got to keep performing for them and you don't know how to get out? Hear the good news. God's grace is available for you. The ultimate lesson from Ruth is not about repentance. It's not about Moab. It's not about struggles. It is about the work of Jesus Christ. Naomi and her family got up, abandoned God's land to live in exile, hoping to build their own kingdom. And it came crashing down around them. But the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily stood up, left the glories of his father's kingdom, placed himself into exile by living among us to put our lives back together by living the life that God demands of us by dying the death that we deserve to die and then being raised to secure our salvation you can be free from guilt and live in what the bible calls shalom this peaceful wholesomeness All you have to do is place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Quit looking to those things to give you joy and peace. You know they don't. Quit building your life on those things and simply turn to Jesus Christ. Confess him as Lord and you can be free and out of that bondage because God can give you grace to turn around because he allows you turns. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you and praise you for the grace you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. A grace that allows you turns. A grace that draws us back to repentance and faith. Lord, we ask that those of us who know you, that even now you would draw us in this moment to a closer walk with you. Lord, there are areas of our life we have let go for so long. We have been disobedient But Lord, we want to be different. By the power of your spirit, would you give us grace to repent? And Lord, I pray that those here who do not know you, that even as Jesus promised that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself, that you would do that great work. Even now, Father, to those who hunger and thirst for something different, would you give them grace to repent and believe the gospel? We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please... St-